Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World, another special episode with a special guest that I'm really excited to introduce you to. In the astronomy world, he's very well known, but for those of you who come from the science fiction and horror world, he may be new to you. Constantine Batigan is a professor of astronomy at Caltech. He is going, we're going to get into all the astronomy and the things that he does. He's an expert in orbital mechanics, which I know some people might be saying, huh? Okay, well, we'll get into that later and we'll talk about like why it takes uh, a whole lot of brain power to be an expert in such a thing. Constantine, welcome to Postcards. Hey, David, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so we're going to get into you as a person first and do some biographical stuff. Um, I know you were not born in this country. You were born in Moscow, but you ended up coming here at 13 years old, but what kind of, you eventually you did a little bit of time in japan right before you came to the united states yeah, that's and right. i bet that had a huge impact on you uh growing up there your father was a famous physicist which so your parents were scientists too so maybe let's start with having parental scientists um no. did that get you on this track uh absolutely not you know one of the things that i really appreciate still to this day uh, about my parents. They applied exactly zero pressure on me to do, you know, anything other than the thing that I was passionate about. They said, go and do the thing that you really want to do. And then it won't feel like work. You will just enjoy it and you will do well at it. Uh, You know, And, and so I, you know, I, I came to to do astronomy and, and astrophysics really, uh, I really fell in love with it only in college. Uh, so I don't really resonate with the usual story of like, you know, I've loved the night sky since I was five years old. And, you know, the first time I saw a meteor shower, I knew I wanted to be astronomer, an astronomer. I was like, at five years old, I had no idea that meteors existed or, or really until I was like 20 years old, I had no interest in, in planets whatsoever. Okay, so we'll come back to that because there's a lot of time in between. But your your parents being scientists, they didn't pressure you to do that. But you did grow up in a, a really different culture than than the one you currently live in. So I'm sure that had a huge impact because this is your formative years. And I know you're a musician and and got into that stuff. Did that stuff come as early? Yeah. So I remember when I first. Um, you know, I remember my very first time listening to Metallica and just like popping the Kill 'Em All tape into my Walkman, and it's just like it, it's it's as if you know my brain wiring changed that that moment because I, I just it was at a time I, I guess I was I don't know ten years old, eleven years old, something like that. Like I was learning to play guitar and I had learned a couple chords and I could do sort of you know, an A minor to an E major transition and and back. And I sort of thought, okay, this is fine. Uh, But then just like, you know, listening to thrash metal, like, how do they play like that? How did this 
how how is this so awesome right and um at that moment you know my my interests entirely became you know music and you know i i still carry that with me to this day and in yeah, fact big... band, like our band we're about we're about four shows away from becoming the next metallica i can feel it <laughs> well um, I, i'm a big metallica fan i'm gonna have to put you in touch with my friend uh ryan downey who does uh speak and destroy a metallica podcast because i bet he would love to interview an astronomer who's into metallica yeah but... i love metallica <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Metallica was a formative band for me, too, obviously. Um, I'm old enough that, you know, my first Metallica record was Garage Days Re-Revisited. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, Day and Date for Injustice for All, but Kill em All being your, your, your formative first record, do you have riffs from that record that you still play every time you pick up the guitar? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, I love Motor Breath, right? Okay. Motor Breath. Yeah, that's a Dave Mustaine riff, I believe, isn't it? Or no, I'm yeah, I mean half of them are, right? Yes, from, from right. Yeah, so it's it's interesting because like I you know, I guess it was it was 97 that I, I got into Metallica. So um Reload just came out, but I, I didn't buy Reload, I bought Load. And I was like, is this is this the same guy singing? Because he sounds like a man. Right now and uh that's not entirely true on kill them all uh, right so you know it was kind of the, that like yeah i mean for a while you know that obsession became my life and to an extent continues to be and i think when you find that record or that band that that kind of strikes you like yeah. lightning like that you're never gonna turn away from you know the power of, of those moments for me I remember very distinctly, you know, I think the record or the song that really hit me was For Whom the Bell Tolls was like mm -hmm. the first Metallica song that, you know, and plus like for me, for as a guitar player, that the right hand of Headfield and the down picking and the, he, nobody plays rhythm guitar and metal better than James Hetfield, especially back in the day, right? It's it's true. I mean, because, you know, you have to, I think, I think part of it is like, you have to have a hammer instead of your hand for, to, to play, to play in that, in that manner. I mean, that was one of the striking things is that it wasn't, it wasn't using the guitar, like, you know, I think so much of his playing is not using the guitar as a guitar. It's, it's like using the guitar as a drum set. It's like a drum set that counteracts you know Lars's drumming you know which admittedly could occasionally use a little bit of help so you know it, it sort of uh you know it beautifully beautifully adds to that so I um I, I agree and you know I, I'm still kind of in awe uh of them they've had their their ups and downs but the, the last album like the Hardwire to self-destruct album was pretty good and by pretty good I mean really good I, I listen to it all the time so, well, I think Moth to the Flame uh, is, is even though it's like a big hit, I think the riffs in that song are just amazing, like very heavy. And 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 uh, I, I'd say another down picker who, who might come close to Hetfield is Max Cavalera of uh, Sepultura and um, Cavalera Conspiracy. He's almost as good as Hetfield yeah. at the down picking. Asymptotic, yes. Yes, yes. So I, I, I imagine thrash metal was was like a huge thing, but... Um, other genres of now, so when you got into when you got this Kill 'em All, were you in Japan at the time, or you? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was in Japan. So there was really, there, there are two bands that I was really into. And obviously one was, one was Metallica. The other one was The Offspring and mm -hmm. still love The Offspring to this day. I don't know why, but I initially, just because, um, you know, all of it was just like people passing tapes around at my school. I had never seen a picture of The Offspring. And primarily like the way I got into the Offsprings, we had a bit of a boxing club in a basement, uh, like where I went to school. And the Offspring was the, you know, Smash, Smash was like the continuous soundtrack, right? And I don't know why, but I had assumed that they were all really old. Uh, being <laughs> like, these guys are, are really good, but man, like, you know, can they, can they, like, really good for them how they uh you know still play at age you know 80 and i i have no idea why i made that assumption uh, <laughs> because they don't exactly sound like i don't know it was just a it was a real a weird connection you made in your brain right yeah that's right i was surprised when i like realized that those guys were not you know like we're not world war ii veterans mm -hmm. yeah right and so how quickly from that hearing kill them all did you pick up the guitar and and get serious about it it's all I did every day, you know, like in, in all free time. I mean, sometimes I just cut school um, specifically to just play. And, you know, like we didn't really have uh, the means to, you know, like get guitar lessons or anything at the time, you know, but my, my dad played. And so he uh, sort of showed me, uh, showed me the ropes, so to speak. And the other, the other thing is I remember, we didn't i didn't have an electric guitar but i had an acoustic one and i couldn't figure out why it sounds drastically different from uh you know metallica and i also couldn't figure out what the words were right like i didn't speak any english at the time so i remember in in trying to recreate one you know i i was just like i have no idea what the hell he's saying i'll just write my own lyrics so i, I wrote my own version of of one which <laughs> It's genius. Well, it's, it's horrible. I mean, it, it right. truly horrible. Um, yeah, I think I recorded it on like on a tape at some point. Some point, and uh, I really hope that's destroyed by now. Like, I hope nobody finds it, and uh, you know, blackmails you. Yeah. Well, it's just because you can't unhear it. I'm I'm more worried for for the damage it will do to whoever hears. But you know, it, it's just to answer your question, it was absolutely the thing that I was into, right? Um, right, right. Well, you know, and that's really cool because I think about, I got into to punk and metal and stuff around the same age. And I got into horror movies at the same time. It was kind of like a simpatico thing. And um, I have a very funny experience with, because I got very into Clive Barker. Clive Barker was, Clive Barker and Stephen King were my heroes in the way that Metallica, like I became obsessed with wanting to become a horror writer you know and what's cool yeah. is we both got these dreams we made these dreams happen but i made my father take me in 1987 when i was in seventh grade to see hellraiser which of course anybody knows the movies about sadomasochistic demons and all this stuff and it was yeah. very hilarious to me to see his reaction and of course his reaction was your sister's taking you next time yeah but so now your father who's a a, a physicist with a particle accelerator and what was his reaction to Metallica when, when you are like, help me learn this song? Cause you, I'm sure you played it for him and said, dad, help me figure this out. 
right? He was into it. Yeah, he was into it. Uh, I mean, it was different from what, you know, he had been into before, but, you know, he was, um, he was 100% on board. And, you know, this is part of, I think, you know, one of the, one of the requirements of being a scientist, uh, at least a good scientist, is you got to be flexible about kind of what comes your way. <laughs> right, and, right, right. You know, yeah. he, he was like, yeah, so I remember we, we figured out, uh, and by we, I mean, uh, really, he figured out and showed me, you know, um, how to play until it sleeps and understand and like, you know, the, the few things that are, that are palatable for somebody who's just starting out. So yeah, we, uh, Inner Sandman, a Kirk Hammett riff, by the way. That's true. That's yeah. true. A rare yeah. Kirk Hammett riff. That's um, right. Apparently there was an iPhone full of them that got lost at some, uh, at some airport. Like this was, you know, this was a whole thing circa 2015 where he was like, I had a full iPhone full of riffs and I lost it at an airport, which <laughs> is, you know, I've definitely heard that excuse from some of my students <laughs> right so, but, now, you know. <laughs> but it does remind you to back up riffs right you know absolutely yeah 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 so so he took this in and 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 was being a really good father and got into it with you that's pretty cool yeah yeah absolutely no i mean like i i totally lucked out in this regard like i have uh you know i lucked out with with awesome parents um, you know, both my, my mom and my dad are, are cool and, you know, are great people. And, you know, I, you know, I actually, you know, enjoy hanging out with them as opposed to the usual, <laughs> you know, the, the usual trajectory of how it goes. Right. Right. Well, and you said an interesting thing too, that I want to drill down a little bit on is that you said that at the time you didn't speak any English. So, you know, what's, what's really interesting is that because you're, you're obviously your English is amazing now, but so were you, were you speaking Japanese in school or, or yeah, yeah. Okay. Cause I know a lot of, you know, having been born in Russia. So, so at the time, were you speaking Russian at home and Japanese at school and like, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I went to Japanese elementary school, you know, when you're eight years old, you just pick it up. Right. Like we arrived in Japan in 94, went to third grade. In fact, I skipped second grade um, by virtue of being too tall because our school <laughs> had some, you know, some set of rules about how large versus small a child can be uh, to fit into the desk because the like the desk kind of grows with you. And um, they were generous quotas, but I exceeded them. Um, you know, I was, I was pretty tall, you know, as a kid and, you know, relatively relatively uh, tall still pretty, pretty pretty tall dude still like. yeah so you know i i got put into third grade and it didn't really matter right because i didn't understand anything anyway but i remember this point kind of half half a year into just sitting in a classroom you know not having any idea what's going on where suddenly i was like i'm, I'm starting to pick i think i understand what they're talking about like I, it was like a quantum moment where I, I realized that some of it is clicking. That's definitely not something that's recreatable, you know, at age, uh, whatever, anything above eight, you know, at age nine, that's already more difficult than, than age eight. Um, I've got an amazing story. Well, it's not an amazing story, but it's a, it's a funny story. So the, on the first day that I arrived to this elementary school, right? The first class they took me to was a music class. And 
I had like seen a guitar before because you know we had a guitar at home and I had seen a piano but that was it right and I would show up to this you know third grade Japanese elementary school orchestra which is like the Phil like the LA Phil you know uh and so it's just like like what what is happening here uh but then the class after that was a kanji test and I kind of freaked out and decided I'm just going to copy what everything that the guy next to me is writing. So I did my best to copy his test uh, and I submit, I turned it in uh, and I had copied everything, including his name. <laughs> right. And I just kind of uh, submitted that for, for review. Um, anyway, it's a, uh, it was an interesting time, but absolutely would not, uh, you know, I would not say that it was in any way bad. Well, what's interesting to me is, is that you grew up speaking Russian, then learned Japanese, and then, of course, had to learn English when you moved to, the, to Santa Cruz at 13. I'm wondering if that amount of learning languages when you're young, I think, maybe makes the science and the processing that you go through something a little bit easier that maybe you know, it helps wire your brain towards these complex things like orbital mechanics. You know what I'm saying? I'm wonder, uh, I wonder about that. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I have any, any more like innate ability to do anything than, than anybody else. I think the one advantage of doing, of kind of being moving around a lot is that, you know, you kind of get over your fear of, of, new things right happening to you and and so i think you know that's an important that's more important i would argue than uh, any form of brain wiring in science right it's more important to just kind of be okay with the constant discomfort of not understanding what the heck is going on right that's the whole that's the whole thing if you understand what's happening right you're not really doing that interesting of research um right. so so i think you know, in that sense, it, it has been beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I see that. So Santa Cruz at 13 years old. Yeah. I mean, that's a big cultural shift. Right. And probably led to getting involved in actually playing music with others. Right. Yeah, that's right. It's the first thing. So like we started a band uh, with uh, with a couple of guys and that, you know, the bass player from our middle school band. I just had beers with him, you know, like a month ago. You know, so we we still uh, we still keep in touch. It was so much fun. I mean, this, cool. this was yeah. one of the really awesome things about moving to the U.S. Right? Like, I couldn't really get a band going in Japan. First of all, we lived in this tiny apartment where with like paper thin walls. Right? Nobody had a drum set. It's just like, it was just not a thing that you could really do. And, and yet here we were in California, right? And people were playing punk, right? Everybody was kind of into it. So I started this band before I could really properly speak English. I, you know, it was fantastic. And, and what was that first band? Come on, what, tell us, tell us called, the cheesy It was called No Release and it was spelled awesome. with a C to to break the rules i mean that's the like that's punk that's that is right punk. we we put out an album uh in you know in eighth grade called munchies crunchies defiance you know i listened to it 
don't know, like a couple months ago. And, and it's awful, you know, right? And it's, right, it's just horrible. And the guitars hey, are, yeah, that's no, part of the process. <laughs> they're not in tune. But again, I think it's, it's one of these things that are important to get over when like, it's kind of okay to, to suck early on. Right. And, um, absolutely, it, you know, you're not going to be good at anything the first, whatever, hundred times you do it. So you got to get that, um, you know, that difficult portion of it out, uh, out of the way as early as possible. Well, you know, Metallica's first show, they played more diamond head songs than they played originals. Headfield didn't even play guitar because I, I think I'm not sure if he intended to, but it was like they were pretty bad to start off. We all start off pretty bad, right? Exactly. That's right. Nobody's be, is born being good, you know, at music. Nobody's born being good at physics. It's so, you know, there's there's kind of a, you know, there, there's almost a comfort in it, right? Like in knowing that the first few times, whatever it is that you do, you're going to you're going to be really bad at it. Yeah. Did you guys do any covers or? Or like, yeah. who, who would you say was your big influence in that first band? Okay, so we we did a cover of Santeria, uh, Sublime, which was uh, which was only marginally horrible. It was actually probably the best uh, music we made. The other the other cover that we did that we actually put on the album was Buddy Holly by Weezer, and we at the time, you know, being fourteen years old or whatever, we we worried. We said, well, what if Weezer comes after us? And, and sues us for for stealing their song and so uh we came up with a solution to this problem which and on the on the album cover we wrote muddy holly instead of buddy holly so we figured that way weezer is not going to find out i mean it's it's one of these things that are um you know that are that are so silly in retrospect but i remember we were we were pretty serious about not getting uh not getting sued by weezer you thought ah we tricked the system, right? That's right, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. did you, do you, do you, now that you're 14 years old when you did that, now, what, later in high school, did you do more bands, different yeah. bands? Like, so what kinds band. of music did you do? Yeah, with, so with the same band, we put out another album, which was better. Then uh, we actually started an al uh, a band with my dad uh, called The Seventh Season. We played, uh, played a ton of shows. Uh, we put out a couple albums, um, in, one in 2003, one in 2007, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, <clears throat> so then the, we moved to SoCal and the band sort of kept going, you know, we, we played a bunch of live shows, but uh, our recording we, we basically went on hi hiatus. We recorded a bunch of stuff like in 2011, and so there's a whole album of of material that's that I actually spent literally the last week finishing and in the meantime uh there's another album that we've recorded which is currently in the process of getting mixed so you know we'll we'll be putting out a couple a uh, couple new uh things in the next year or so now that's a wrinkle I didn't notice was that your father was it, it was is he still in that band with you or or just didn't well, time in it I mean, yeah, so the band is, is uh, I mean, he, they, my parents live in New Mexico now, so it's, it's yeah. a bit more tough for uh, him to come out for, for shows, but, but we did a gig with him 
uh, you know, a few years ago, maybe 2017 or so. And that was fun. That's you know, awesome. we, actually, during the pandemic, uh, we recorded with my dad a bit because going back to those 2011, primarily drum tracks and guitar tracks, and we, we kind of layered his bass on top and, and did a bunch of vocals. So in the band, you know, the lineup is always is always kind of uh, in flux, but it's all um, it's all great people. Almost everybody has a PhD. Um, so it's awesome. Yeah. It's kind of like that uh, band Stephen King did with all the New York Times bestsellers, like, yeah. you know, having yeah. all PhDs. And uh... now, Stephen King, I got to tell you, you know, if he keeps this up, just one day, he's just going to make it in this business. Okay. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. That's yeah, right. if he's persistent, you know, he'll maybe catch up to his son on that, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> well, that's, dude, that is... I think it's really cool that your father obviously taught you how to play guitar, right? And play, play yeah. these moments. So that that's that's really cool that you guys continue to uh, play together. That's 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 really neat. Well, it's cool that you're still working on on, on the music and and still. I'm I'm sure. Um, what's the 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 balance like for for having the academic life and, and doing the music, and then from there we're going we're going full astronomy after this question because yeah. I'm ready to go. <laughs> okay, look, I mean, uh, for me, the, those two really go hand in hand. I don't really have creative ideas in in astrophysics if I don't if I don't play music, and I think the closest link between the two that um, that has happened is the is the Planet Nine Symphony. So you know, I became friends with Eduardo Martoret, who is the conductor of the Miami Symphony, and he in part, you know, inspired by, you know, our work on, on Planet Nine, wrote this amazing, you know, amazingly complicated symphony. And we actually, we recorded it during the pandemic in sort of the distant way where they got the, they recorded the symphony part in Miami and I layered the guitars, you know, in my home studio. And then we put it together and sent it to the International Space Station where, uh, you know, I assume they're 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 just blasting it all all day and all night long. I mean, I'd be offended if they were not. But that yeah, was, that was it, so it is pretty cool. I I, I gotta yeah. say, like it, it's it's one of the I listened to it the other day and was just um, and it's funny because um, it it is like a perfect synergy of of this kind of thing. And it's really cool that that these musicians were like, and they reached out to you and said like, Hey, let's make some music for, for planet nine. Yeah. I mean this, the whole thing actually got, it came together in part uh, in, in large part to give full credit where it's due, due to our mutual friend, Helen, uh, who is, who is, you know, one of these peoples that, uh, that are, that are a catalyst to just things happening. Right. I mean, it's uh, so so you know Helen was the um, was kind of the the coupling between uh, between all this and injecting energy into the project, making sure that it happened. Um, you know, I don't. I have to say, like, I don't read music, and it was it was pretty pretty hard, uh, especially because some of the um, some of the parts of the guitar. Are, are actually quite complicated in the in that mm. symphony right so uh it it was a challenge and uh you know 
like with everything else, the first 1,000 times I, uh, I played it, it was awful, right? <laughs> but right. You know, we, it turned out well in the end, I think, really well, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. All right, so you yeah. got into astronomy in college. You didn't, you didn't love the night sky before that. You weren't into it. There had to be a moment where you were like, I think I can do this, or this is exciting, or now I have a passion for it. What was the seed that made you suddenly passionate about astronomy? It was the realization that chaos is prevalent in astronomy. And here's the story. Um, like UC Santa Cruz, where I went for college, has these occasional, like, uh, or at least when I was an undergrad, they have these, you know, uh events where the undergrads are supposed to hook up with their like research advisors and and kind of do work together and you kind of get introduced and my uh, girlfriend at the time who's now my wife talked to this guy greg laughlin and then introduced uh him to me um because she was like this is the type of guy that constantine would enjoy working with so i got to talking with him and he he's an expert in astrophysical chaos theory and we sort of got to talking about the fact that asteroids right like in the asteroid belt right the orbits of asteroids are unpredictable on long periods of time and i said wait a minute like what are you talking about unpredictable right like it's just gravity how can how can it not be predictable we know you know the force is gmm over r squared like it's it's trivial we did the circular orbit like in class on like the first class of physics. Mm. And he's like, yeah, it's it's actually not so trivial because on long periods of time, small perturbations to um, the kind of starting conditions lead to these wide uncertainties. So the, the notion that planetary motion and just like motion of astrophysical bodies can be fundamentally unpredictable really resonated with me for some reason right and you know it was starting that moment you know that became you know my life in parallel with music right um and i still i still not only enjoy it but i still love it to this day your um your thesis was the diet uh diet um the dynamical stability of the solar system so right. so the whole so what you do is basically, or in this thesis, you're talking about what makes the solar system basically, like how can you look at the clockworks that happen in our solar system? That's orbital mechanics in a nutshell, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So it's the, it's the attempt to find solutions for, you know, the long-term behavior, orbital behavior of heavenly bodies under gravity. So what you're basically the, the the solar system and the function of the solar system is what what you what you do and that's how you ended up at Caltech right because yeah that's, that's right so yeah. like you know it's funny we were playing so many shows in undergrad that like my grades were actually not that good because um, I was just always doing homework you know like backstage or or whatever but you know I realized I was pretty good at research and I published a paper by the time I was applying for graduate school. And that was the only reason um, 
that and a clerical error were the two reasons I got into graduate graduate school. And so, you know, coming to Caltech was was amazing, right? I, I thought to myself, okay, this is this is not something that just comes along, you know, randomly, right? This is an opportunity of a lifetime. So uh, I worked really, really hard in grad school, right? I mean, I was I was in my office doing uh, doing research like every day until two in the morning, right? That was my that was my schedule. Right. Again, because at the time I realized, okay, if I don't do this now, um, right, I, I a won't have time to do it later, and also like you're not going to be good at research for the first hundred times you do it. Right. So, you know, there's no real way of getting around, you know, paying the, that, that cost, if you will. And it's good to do it, you know, while you're, while you're young, while you're 22 or something. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm sure, and listen, I'm going to try not to make too many jokes about this, but you did end up at the department that the big bang theory is, has, has, has made, popular but the reality of course is is that you guys are doing insanely intense hard science you know in 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 reality so i'm sure there's a difference between like when you go into that particular school with everything that's happening in pop culture i'm sure that there was a certain degree of of jokes and things about that you know and and just you know in reality it's actually it's exactly like big bang theory oh really yeah really? and many okay. people don't, don't realize that that's a documentary people think <laughs> it's, a comedy. it's actually a documentary series yeah well then i've got to ask because i my wife and i are both we did like big we got burned out on it, it was on enough years that we did eventually yeah. burn down on it was there ever a moment on that show where you were just like that is way too close to something that re- that really happened yeah you know it's funny because like my wife also worked uh, worked at Caltech, uh, you know, in a in a biology lab when I was in grad school. When we would come home and watch Big Bang Theory, and we were like, "Why are we watching? We we're we're in this all day. We come home and we watch this on TV. Like, what is wrong with us?" <laughs> right. Um, right. Right. But so, you know, there's a certain familiarity, right? You know, punk rockers want to watch movies about punks, and you know, <laughs> like that's one of the reasons why punk rockers like Green Room, you know, even though it's like has a horrifying ending. But you're like, hey, I've been on tour and I've played in shitty places, you know. That's right. Where, they call it a Tuesday. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So okay. So and then you got into like exoplanets and 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 hot Jupiters, and so when you're stretching out and doing these different topics you know, now you're learning about deeper, more deeper forms of astronomy. And what are the more exciting things that you discovered once you got past the surface, when you started doing these different research papers? And what are your favorite kind of like hidden corners of astronomy? Hmm. Okay, this is, so, you know, I've had a lifelong fascination with, with chaos, right? So I have a I have a paper coming out with a couple of colleagues of mine, uh, Rosemary Mardling, who's in Australia, and David Nisworny, who's at Colorado, where we relate the behavior of Kuiper Belt objects. These are objects beyond the orbit of Neptune, sort of distant things, um, to uh, what's called the standard mapping, which is a, a slightly obscure uh, mathematical um, mathematical module, if you will, that you can use to sort of, it's like a toy model that you use to study chaos. And so that's something I'm, I'm very excited about at the moment. 
I have also developed a, a love for magnetohydrodynamics. So this is the behavior of kind of ionized, you know, ionized or weakly ionized plasmas and their interaction both as fluids themselves as well as interactions with the um, magnetic field. That's, that subject is beautiful. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. And the other thing that I've been really interested in recently is the question of how the satellites of Jupiter and Saturn formed, right? They, that's the, we've known that Jupiter has satellites for over 400 years, right? That's literally the first discovery ever made in astronomy, right? Galileo looked at the moon and looked at the brightest thing he saw in the sky, Jupiter, and found satellites. What we don't understand is why they're there in the first place. The, our, our understanding of their formation is remarkably naive. And so I would say that, um, you know, that's, that's something I've gotten really into over the last couple of years. We have a paper with a colleague from France named Alessandro Morbidelli, uh, where we've kind of proposed a new theoretical framework for, um, for explaining how the satellites formed. And so that's a cool problem. Well, and if you're lucky enough on the right night and you're, you've got your telescope on Jupiter and you can see like IO transiting or whatever, I was at a star party two years ago where I managed again to take some coworkers to it. And we were lucky enough that over a couple, over the hours that we were there that night, we got to see IO transit. And the fact that, cause you can look at Jupiter and it kind of looks static, but if you can, see the moons moving over over time it just really sends home to people that that this is movement that's happening it's happening yeah. right now it's and so, yeah. and so i do think the formation or or like whether it's jupiter or saturn like these planets that have like tons of satellites and knowing more that's like a mini solar system right so like exactly in, in a lot of ways that's exactly right. It's yeah. a miniature solar system. One really remarkable thing about it to tie back to exoplanets is that if you were to take Jupiter and the satellites and scale them up to the mass of Jupiter turning into the mass of the sun and scale up the mass of the satellites in an according way, you would get the typical extrasolar planetary system, right? The typical exoplanet census is not the solar system. Right, it's mm -hmm. objects that are uh, marginally bigger than the Earth, and by marginally I mean factor a few times bigger than the Earth um, in terms of mass, and they orbit their host stars with periods that go from sort of days to weeks. Right, mm -hmm. that's the common outcome of planet formation. By contrast, the solar system has nothing inside Mercury's 88-day orbit. Um, that in itself, by the way, is a really interesting theoretical question. Why did the solar system turn out differently? And, and in general, right, the solar system being a relatively uncommon outcome of the planet formation process through the, throughout the galaxy. Well, that's like, new that's, science, right, too, because the amount of, I mean, we're discovering hundreds of thousands of exoplanets now, like all the time. And when Vera Rubin gets up and all that, it's going to be more, right? I mean, well, I, I think for, you know, where the census is going to be in the thousands for the foreseeable future. And Vera Rubin is going to be very 
good for um, solar system stuff as well as uh, like galactic stuff. For exoplanets right now, the key kind of discoveries are coming from the TESS satellite. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Right. right. Um, that TESS will eventually, of course, retire. Uh, but there are there are many missions um, that are coming online as well. There's Plato, which is a European mission, uh, European satellite, um, kind of like Kepler. That's that's going to be coming online. So it's it's going to continue to be an exciting field for the next you know decades. Well, and that's a change. And, and science fiction writers like myself need to take note. That's a change that we're seeing is that you know we just kind of always assume when we're writing. These mm -hmm. other sol these other planets, we have to assume. We just assume, okay, well, there's eight planets, and there's a Goldilocks zone, or maybe there's ten planets, and there's a Goldilocks zone, and and then no, actually, there's nine. Yeah, right. Yeah, I know when you get there. <laughs> I, I, um, but uh, we, we we as science fiction writers, we always kind of try to. We've been thinking in terms of like that the solar system is just kind of a normal common thing but what you're saying is is that we are weird like yeah. our solar system is unusual like the way it, that the planets work. that's right and then it's unusual in a multitude of ways so if you just you know Poincaré who was a you know remarkable uh, mathematician lived about a century ago and both a philosopher he uh, often approximated the solar system as just a sun Jupiter and a bunch of other stuff that that is not very massive. And if you take that approach, which is basically the right approach to take, then of course the giant planets Jupiter and Saturn are the main event of the solar system. Right. As it turns out, giant planets are rare. We don't quite know why. I mean, there's nothing about the core nucleated instability theory of their formation that should suggest that they they form only rarely, but around sun-like stars, they're a 10% effect, okay? Mm. So 90% of sun-like stars don't have, the more common lower mass stars, things smaller than the sun, uh, it's e they're even more rare. So just by having the giant planets, the solar system already scores an A, right? It's already kind of in right. the top 10 percentile. And then you can go through and enumerate you know, other remarkable constraints, like the early solar system was enriched in aluminum 26, right? It's an unstable isotope, has a lifetime of 700,000 years, which causes many of the uh, meteorites to, to differentiate. Like that is not a common thing either. Then you look at the earth, right? Which I think is quite an important planet for, for us to think about. The earth did not form while the disk of gas and dust that produced the giant planets was around. The Earth formed 100 million years after the gas was gone, right? That's, mm. That in itself is a remarkable thing. That's actually why we, we can do astronomy in the first place, because we don't have this extended hydrogen helium atmosphere around the Earth. And the Earth we wouldn't even know what was up there at all if, mm. if, yeah, we had a different atmosphere. Well, right. And so... I, I guess that would give back up to Fermi, right? The idea to the Fermi paradox that if our solar system is so unusual, that could explain why there's a lot less life out there because there's less, or at least as we define, or, or as we think of it, you know, there's 
you know, the whole concept of a Goldilocks zone, right, is, is even more rare once we actually look at the science of exoplanets, right? Right. I mean, look, I mean, when it comes to the question of life on other planets, I don't think that's an, a particularly interesting question because the answer is obviously yes, right? Like, is there right. life on, of course there's life on other planets. We, there's planets around every star that we know of to, to a pretty good approximation. Maybe it's half the stars, but it doesn't really matter. The galaxy has a trillion stars. So yeah. even if only half of them have planets, there is, there are, there's a ton of planets out there. And right. it's a statistical impossibility that um, the earth is the only place that hosts life. The more, the sharper, and I would say more interesting question is, um, where's the closest life? Is it on Europa, right? The satellite of Jupiter, is it, you know, little whales swimming in the oceans of Europa or Enceladus, the satellite of Saturn, or do we have to travel halfway across the galaxy to find, you know, a, the next kind of like DNA based life? That, that question remains very much unsolved. What were we talking about? <laughs> I, just, I feel like I went off on a, on a random tangent, but uh, no, no, we were talking about the uh, how weird and different our solar system is. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, the solar system is weird. The Earth is special. Let's keep it. Let's keep it uh, clean. Yeah, and totally. We've not been doing a good job. Speaking of special planets and or dwarf planets, as they may be called, you and you uh, and Mike Brown have. Base, well, you work with Mike Brown, who's kind of universally known as the Pluto killer, right? Yeah. Um, sure. But the discovery of Pluto is very important to what you you guys do. And I wonder, because the way I look at it, and you, you're probably going to laugh at me and be like, no, no, you're wrong, David. I'm going to laugh with you. Yeah, okay. But my theory is, is that I, well, I still feel Pluto is a planet, but I think that there's, if you're going to define it as a planet, there's hundreds of planets out in that part of the solar system. And it's just hard for humans to wrap their brain around that they want it to be this nice small number, but really there's there's so many objects out there, right? That, yeah, that if we call Pluto a planet, then we have to call lots of other things planets. And I'm sure that- like, like what define, what's an island versus a continent, right? Like- right. You know, is Australia an island or a continent? Well, maybe it's both. But uh, you know, Australia. I, I think the, you know, there it's it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit silly to really think hard about the definition of a planet, right? Um, because we don't have like a definition for what a guitar is, right? We don't have a definition for what a star is, right? We those are concepts that we understand very well. But we don't right, necessarily right. have to like delineate that a guitar must have six strings unless it's a seven string guitar and then it's a different kind of, right? It's just like, it's a useless thing to think about. Now with planets, uh, what do we mean by planets? We, by planets, at least for me, what I interpret them as are things that play a dominant gravitational role in kind of sculpting the architecture of the solar system. Uh, if I throw, yeah. you know, uh, you know, a hat into, uh, you know, into outer space and it orbits the sun, clearly my hat is not a planet. So that boundary intuitively lies 
somewhere and it has to do with mass. The fascinating thing about Pluto is that when Pluto was discovered in 1930 by Clyde Tombo, uh, they thought the thing that Clyde Tombo was looking for was a seven Earth mass object, right? Something that was predicted by Parseval Lowell to, sh to should have been there, should have been there. When the discovery um, of Neptune happened, right? That's right. After the discovery of Neptune, and when they found something they assumed that, well, this must be the seven Earth mass thing. Immediately, there was a problem where they looked at it and they said, well, for seven Earth masses, it sure doesn't look big. So they said, well, okay, let's, uh, let's revise it. So now it's going to be one Earth mass, right? Because this is something that uh, is perhaps not as widely known as it should be. When you're just looking at an object uh, in outer space, you have no idea what its mass is, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just like if you looked at a truck from far away, right, you could estimate its mass based upon its size, sort of, but you, you would get the wrong answer depending on whether it's loaded or unloaded. So um, similarly with, with Pluto, you know, its mass kind of kept going down and down and down until 1978 when its satellite, Charon, was discovered. And then it was like, oh boy, this thing is 500 times less massive than the Earth. In fact, it has, its surface area is almost perfectly equivalent to that of Russia, right? And I'm like, you know, Russia is, a, is big, but it's, it's not a planet. Although it sort of is its own planet, but it's, it's um, you know, my point here- 13 time zones is still a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. So I think it's- it's interesting, like, I did not know the, story, the history of Pluto's discovery until all this Planet Nine business, uh, you know, caused me to really look into it more deeply. But it's fascinating. And, uh, you know, if you, if you were to kind of stop your plot at 1978 and kind of track Pluto's mass, it was clearly on track to disappear by the year like 2009 or something where it's it's mass because it was going down so fast you know right right well but for for the listeners like one of the reasons why you were on my radar is i went to see you do a lecture at san diego state uh, a couple of years ago and something big happened with pluto since that lecture which is that uh new horizons uh did a did did, did its pass of pluto um i'm wondering did did New Horizons making its pass of Pluto really affect? Did, did you guys learn anything that was helpful for planet for for the Planet Nine search uh, with, no. with New Horizons? Or no, no. I mean, New Horizons data is remarkable in its own right. Right, and it has nothing to do with Planet Planet Nine. What it really revealed is that Pluto has geology, which is which looks like the Earth's geology, right? And this is because uh, geology is a, you know, is really a physical process. Tends to recreate itself at um, at different temperature scales because yeah, on Earth we have obviously water ice and water ice flows at temperatures relevant to Pluto that are like forty Kelvin or whatever. Ice water ice does not flow at all. It basically behaves like metal. But you know, CO ice, CO freezes out and then CO flows. So you can have a lot of the same phenomena, glaciers, uh, and just like remarkably cool uh, terrains uh, that recreate themselves on these dwarf planets. So, so that in itself is 
is beautiful and and scientifically interesting, but it's a separate problem for Planet Nine. Yeah, and I just realized that um, a lot of my listeners are people who don't know what Planet Nine, what 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 we mean by Planet Nine, but. So the, the probably the uh, biggest research project that you're involved in and the thing that you're most famous for doing is you're working with Mike Brown at Caltech to basically using the same kind of science that the discovery of Neptune kind of led to okay. finding uh, Pluto. When you guys looked at the crunched the numbers of the orbital mechanics, you believe that there is a five to seven times Earth mass object. Um, um, out there in the solar system that we haven't discovered yet that you're calling planet nine and that you guys are, are looking for. And what I think is, is most interesting about this too, is that it, it, it operates in all kinds of different ways. But the thing that I always find is funny is that you guys have said, and I correct me if I'm wrong, 98.2% certain that it's out there. That's a pretty firm number, right? Yeah, we have an update on that actually. So it, w- it was 99.8, uh, but it has, um, you know, we, we've redone the statistics in a slightly better way and it's gone down to 99.6. Uh, okay. That's that's in the upcoming- uh, That's a firm number though, that yeah, you're so, positive it's out there. Okay, so, so to be clear, what this number represents, that's the, um, the kind of 100% minus that number, the 0.4%, yeah. is the false alarm probability that the orbital patterns that we see in the night sky are not real, okay? That's the mm-hmm. probability that we see them by coincidence, by observational bias, by, uh, you know, basically by virtue of getting unlucky or, or perhaps lucky. Um, so, this does not equate to the probability. This is not the probability of planet nine per se. This is the probability of there being a gravitational signature of something being out there. One of the really interesting things about the calculations that we do, and one of the really unfortunate things is that we can never, based upon the methods that we use and the, and the data that we have, we can never tell you what planet nine actually is. It can be a five earth mass burrito. It can be a five earth mass planet, a five earth mass glass of wine. Like all of those things will produce the same gravitational signature. In fact, it can even be a five earth mass ring of material. Um, our models will are, will not distinguish between um, between the all of these all of these options, but. You know, just if you kind of consider what is astrophysically most reasonable, right? In that mass range, the only thing we know of, uh, the only thing we know certainly, come in five Earth mass. So, so pardon my science fiction brain, because I am a science fiction writer. Um, could it be a five mass black hole or wormhole or something that uh, the black hole thing has been proposed by um, by some colleagues at um, the University of Illinois? Black hole. The standard way to make a black hole is you wait for a star that's more massive than 1.4 solar masses, roughly speaking, to collapse under its own weight. Basically, run out of fuel that keeps Juice. it. <laughs> That's right, exactly. And then uh, create a black hole. Um, so the standard black holes that come 
sort of from stellar evolution are much more massive than five Earth masses. But during the Big Bang, you it's one of the kind of predictions of um, of inflationary cosmology is that you produce a whole spectrum of black hole masses, including five Earth mass ones. Now you can ask the question: How likely is it that the sun has a binary black hole, you know, attached to it. And I think there's, that's an interesting calculation to do. Um, but, you know, as far as we know, like if it was a five earth mass black hole, everything about our calculations would work identically. Interesting. And because everybody has this concept of the black hole kind of pulls everything in and, and you know, but it, it, it would just cause the same kind of orbital mechanics that your numbers account for, right? Exactly. So, uh, the, yeah. What we call the metric, um, which, is, which is the general relativistic way of saying gravity, basically. The gravity of a black hole is no different than the gravity of a non-spinning star. The sun's gravity, if the sun turned into a black hole tomorrow, in fact, this is a GRE physics question that comes up all the time. Uh, what happens if the sun turns into a black hole tomorrow? What happens to the Earth's orbit? And the answer is nothing. It gets, it'll be dark, but <laughs> orbit will be identically the same. Interesting. I'm going to use a Metallica analogy for your Planet Nine search. Oh, okay, it. so you guys, right now, it seems like for the last couple of years, you've been searching for Planet Nine and it's like if Cliff Burton got his first Kmart, Kmart bought bass guitar and now soon he's going to get his Rickenbacker and he's going to be able to play. Sorry, NST. You, I think you, you either broke up or muted yourself or, or Cliff, the ghost of Cliff Burton uh, <laughs> like, was like, whatever you're about to say next is not going to work. Uh, okay. Um, my connection was unstable for a second. Do you hear me yeah. now? Fine. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, ghost, the ghost of Cliff was definitely messing with my analogy. So imagine you, mm -hmm. you're, it's like Cliff Burton going from the, the first bass guitar to the Rickenbacker with, you're going, you have great telescopes you guys are using right now, but the, you're getting the really good stuff soon and it's going to make a huge difference for your search. How hard is it? Because what people have to remember is if you're looking even for a planet like Pluto or if you're looking for your Uranus or Neptune, they're so far out from the sun that they don't reflect light. Like when you see Venus in the West right. tonight, right? Mm -hmm. It's so close to the sun. That's why it's so bright. But these objects far out there, they're not reflecting a lot of light. So it's hard to find it. Like how, are, how is the game changing soon? Yeah. Okay. So look, first of all, I, I appreciate you um, bringing that up because I think it's hard to convey just how dim Planet Nine is. It is, I think, a hundred million times dimmer than Neptune, right? And Neptune right. itself was not discovered until the mid 1800s. And for that, you need a pretty significant telescope. Um, the game is changing in the next couple years because the Vera Rubin Observatory is coming online and that's going to be that's right. Yeah, uh, doing a very efficient search of the night sky, kind of scanning things up and down. 
and um, you know it's it's got great sensitivity. Its sensitivity is actually not as good as the Subaru telescope that we are, are using. But what it really brings to the table is the efficiency of the search. Because what when we do our search, first of all, um, you know, astronomical time, like time on the telescope, is hard to come by, right? It's not like you can just show up and say, "Well, I'm using it tonight," right? You get a few nights a year. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if the weather happens to be bad, you just don't collect any data or fog rolls in, you don't collect it, you know, you collect bad data or the upper atmosphere gets turbulent, right? Things that you really can't, you know, account for or predict. Or Elon Musk puts up some satellites and yeah, that, that's a, that's another problem. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, right, our search, I think, is one that's, that's rather inefficient. We, we do our best, but at the end of the day, like we don't know if we've already covered the part of the sky where planet nine is, but we just didn't find it. Um, but what Vera so Rubin's going to do is just create data that you can look at over time where it's just, it's basically taking a snapshot all mm -hmm. the time, right? And yeah. like, yeah, got it. Yeah. It opens up every night, does its thing, um, and then closes and then repeat, you know, rinse and repeat. So this is going to be pretty revolutionary for the outer solar system. And I think that's going to be, that's going to be really cool. Right. And because there's more than just planet nine to find out there, there, there's, there's all kinds of really interesting things and in how the Oort cloud works and, and, and Absolutely. Absolutely. that we just, just don't know. And yeah, it's amazing. We've got Voyager out there, but it wasn't really designed to, to do, <laughs> to, to send us a lot of information back. And it, for example. But now here's another thing about Planet Nine that I find super, super fascinating. Gets into, uh, gets close to the science fictional brain, right? And it's okay. one of the things that makes the, the ideas of Planet Nine somewhat controversial is, so as I understand orbital, orbital mechanics, and I could have this wrong because again, I'm, I'm just just a fan <laughs> right so, but, so I, i'm only doing i'm only i'm only doing orbital mechanics as a fan too right so the the planets are kind of in a kind of equal in a plane right where we're a little bit up from each other a little bit down from each other but we're all basically going around the sun in the same kind of path <laughs> but you guys have this theory that the numbers kind of put planet nine on a completely different trajectory am i right about that or am Absolutely. i yeah so planet nine is uh had orbits the sun with an orbital period of about ten thousand years right um which is up from the 164 years of neptune it's its orbit is considerably more elliptic right so it's got a um out of roundness and eccentricity of about you know 20 or 30 percent maybe a little bit more and um, finally, its orbit is inclined with respect to the plane of the solar system by about 20 degrees. Now, is that weird? Of course, it's weird if you just make the kind of standard projection of, okay, we've got the Earth and Mars and all of these things are on pretty circular orbits. But it's actually not that weird if you compare it with the extrasolar senses of planets. Most that was my next question. <laughs> yeah, the extrasolar planets that are long period tend to be um, highly eccentric. And so in that, in that regard, it's maybe not too surprising. Do we find case, exoplanets that have 
totally different kinds of orbits in the survey like yeah yeah so so i feel uh, i forgot the license plates like hg16 blah 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 there's a bunch of numbers b which is a exoplanet which has a planet nine like orbit mm. uh, so that one was just discovered either this year or last year i don't know the pandemic is all one day and simultaneously like 400 years you know so right. um, but yeah so so it's weird things happen once you get further away from the sun part of this part of the reason for that is that early on when solar systems are are being born they don't they're not born in isolation right they're born in clusters of stars um that are maybe thousand three thousand you know ten thousand stars all forming together and so once you get far, far enough away from the star from your host star, you can start to feel the perturbations from the passing stars, and that can perturb your orbit significantly. That's one way to explain why Planet Nine is there in the first place, if you will. Mm. Now, okay, before we wrap up, because I've taken a lot of your time, and and I just this has been super awesome, um, but I want you to try and I I, I want to try to get you to flex some speculative muscles here and i know that's hard for some scientists to do but you're also a musician and creative guy so i think you can do this but i'd like to imagine and i know you guys have to think about what find after you find planet nine because if you're 98 or 99.2 percent or however much your your numbers uh <laughs> sure that you're going to once you find it what are you most looking forward to studying about this object given that the statistical pro probability is that it's a planet um, that that is much bigger than Earth, like it, once we find it and can actually like calculate and put a telescope on it on a regular basis and look at it and maybe long time down the line, send a New Horizons type craft towards it. What do you expect to find? What do you want to find? What are you most, what do you think is out there so there's a there's a whole range of kind of day one projects that we've thought about one that i'm maybe most excited about uh, is the possibility that it has satellites right i mean there's no reason to suspect that it does not satellites are not like some weird outcome of you know universal chance it's they form through the same physics you know as as planets um so thinking through about you know the possibility that it has satellites uh, well, what was the tidal evolution of these satellites like these kinds of problems are really exciting the other of course you know very basic question is what is planet nine made out of what is what is what does its spectrum look like what does its atmosphere look like because as i've mentioned already the most common outcome of planet formation is not the earth as far as we can tell, it's not Jupiter and Saturn, it's sort of five Earth mass objects. So if we discover planet nine, you know, within our lifetime, and, and I sure hope we will, that will be the closest window that we will have to understanding what planetary bodies throughout the galaxy look like, right? That's going to be our closest link to extrasolar planets. So because it's so far away, it's so different, right? Well, it's also it's also in the, in the right mass range. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, the Earth and Venus and Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus and Neptune are 
different. They're not the most common type of planetary body that we found orbiting other stars. Planet nine very much falls into that correct range of, um, of mass. So I personally, I find that to be quite remarkable. Mm, okay. Now, um, I, I, I asked the same question of the guy who used to be across the hall from you at Harvard. Um, <laughs> and uh, but I, I want to ask you too, um, what is, are there ideas in astronomy that are, that one day you hope to come back to that might be so far out of the box that, that you're, you're, you're just really trying to, to, you know, it's something that I'd like to do, but I almost think it's it's almost too speculative to do. Like, are there are there things that maybe in the future you, you that are that that are weird now that you hope one day yeah. will come closer to the circle? No, I, I understand. What, yeah, I understand what you're asking, but uh, you know, really, the answer for things I'm interested, in, no, uh, I uh, never worry about something being overly speculative or overly weird if the laws of physics take me someplace right mm. and that's where they take i think that one of the kind of uh you know almost responsibilities of uh a a good scientist is to you know is to on the one hand be very self-skeptical on the other hand when the you know the options run out for for you know the kind of alternative for the simple explanations if things don't make sense then you pursue the thing that is weird and unexpected and might end up being controversial and it doesn't matter because this is what we're paid to do right the kind of the agreement right is that we will use a little bit a very small fraction truly a minute fraction of your taxes to try and do amazing things. And if we don't do amazing things with it, then, then we're not, you know, carrying out our end of the bargain. So I think that, you know, it's, I, well, I have- And yeah. you said that chaos is what fascinated you and like understanding the chaos of, of how it works, you're gonna find weird aspects. I mean, Planet Nine yeah. itself is, is a weird, well, Pluto was a weird thing. That's why in 1936 or whenever they found it, it was so hard to find because you know, was unexpected. It, it, was it was unexpected. Yes, and then over time they become less, less unexpected. I'm sorry, I, but no, yeah, no. you're right. That 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 is that is the mission that you guys do. So, all right. So let's let's uh, get into um, how people can find your music first, uh, right. because that was the first topic. How can people find find your music online? What's the best way to do that? Uh, so look, you know, we haven't we haven't put out a new thing since like 2007, but we will be putting out a couple of new albums, like I said, you know, over the next year or so. And uh, the website of our band is the seventh season band. You can also follow me on Twitter at K Batigan. Uh, I usually post band stuff. We're on our, our band is on Instagram at the dot seventh dot season um where else do we do we're in i guess we're on facebook i don't know if i don't know if people still use that 
Uh, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're on Facebook. We're on that. Uh, we're on SoundCloud. We're everywhere. We're peaking, right? right? We're like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's right. Um, so look, uh, I'm like I said before. I'm really, really, really excited about the music that we'll be putting out in the next uh, year. It's it's been a long and a uh, really fun effort to put these albums together, and and and. It, they're good, uh, or at least I think they're good. And, yeah. and my wife thinks they're good. Well, yeah, you have reason to be proud of you. You've worked your butt off on it. So, so yeah. And um, so that's where people can find your music. Now, they could also go to your Twitter to find, you do post about your research too. Um, yeah. I've, I follow you on Twitter and and sometimes you, you post like pictures of orbital mechanics numbers and I just go, whoa, I have no, I have no idea what's going on there. Uh, but I, I know you're doing good stuff, <laughs> but well, um, yeah. that's where people can find a lot of that. But do you guys have a, a center for finding the Planet Nine research uh, or any of that? Yeah, we sort of have a blog that's not very well maintained. I think it's findplanet9.blogspot.com. Um, but but really, you know, most of the stuff that I post about Planet Nine, I just post on Twitter. Um, I'm I'm not like I'm not a good uh, Twitter citizen, or whatever. You know, I don't I don't um, I don't post I, I guess often enough. Um, but you know, when stuff comes out, when like we when new science, new papers and stuff come out, I, I try to be at least marginally diligent about putting together little explainers about what this what this all means so so you know i try to do that kind of thing yeah no no and you do good outreach and and um like i said the the sdsu lecture was what put you on 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 my map and and uh i think it's good that you uh were kind of going out and doing these kinds of things and 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 talking to the public, I it was a really packed room there too it's at San Diego State. I was impressed with how many people turned out. Yeah, uh, it always it always um, you know uh, it always is humbling you know to to have people come uh, and and kind of be there to listen to you to you ramble on about the outer solar system. I'm always amazed that as many people are are interested in uh, in astronomy as the as there are but you know i think it's also a testament to how like you know how much just we all as humans resonate with with curiosity you know what i mean that's right uh, yep well and and we you know we look up all the time and and it's it's fascinating to to it's one thing to see the night sky, but to understand a even in little tiny ways how it works is, is just fascinating. Totally. All yeah. right, Constantine uh, uh, Batigan, you uh, uh, were awesome. Uh, I'd love to have you back at some point too. Um, uh, and maybe hopefully with some good news about Planet Nine um, in the future. And uh, I really appreciate the time. I think uh, my listeners will really enjoy this. And um, uh, go go uh, buy his album when it's out. And um, thanks for listening. All right. Thanks, David. <laughs>